Good morning. Pascal and the posters. Was it six guys for four whole days? Was the van in use for all of those days? How many posters went up? How far and wide did they go up? Colm Mungon on Late Debate with questions that started last weekend and are now lurching into next week. At issue, undeclared expenses to the tune of about €1,000 by Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform, Pascal Donoghue, from the 2016 election. Lest you were otherwise engaged, here with a rapid-fire run-through, Harry McGee of the Irish Times on Wednesday's Drive Time. So, uh, a friend of his, Michael Stone, who's a businessman and the uh, founder of a very successful engineering firm, offered to put up posters for Mr Donoghue during the 2016 campaign, Sarah. And that was a kind of a, a battle for survival for Mr Donoghue because that constituency had been reduced from four seats to three. And it was very tight. And there was a question mark over whether Mr Donoghue would survive or not. In any instance, he put up posters uh, in the constituency. Uh, Mr Donoghue filled out his expenses for him, but he didn't attribute anything uh, to what had been contributed by Mr Stone. So it all laid to rest until last week, essentially. Uh, there had been queries put to Mr Donoghue in the interim, uh, but last week a complaint was made to SIPO and Mr Donoghue uh, uh, investigated uh, the matter and admitted uh, that he had failed to uh, to include all his expenses in his election expenses statement in 2016. And essentially, um, Mr Stone had paid uh, six workers uh, a total of €1,100 to erect and take down the posters. Now, because some of them were taken down after the polling day, the actual relevant sum was €917 uh, that was used up to and including the election. And for the use of the van, there was a company van that was used, plus two private cars. Uh, the use of the van, uh, the rate that was attributed to that was 140. So it was 1,057 euro in total that he neglected uh, to uh, declare. Well, on Wednesday in the Dáil, Minister Donoghue acknowledged that he had made a clear mistake in not including the cost in his election expenses, something for which he apologised. The expenses were amended on Sunday and given to the standards in public office body, variously referred to as Zippo, Sipo or Zippo. Neither myself nor anyone involved in my campaign team paid the people concerned, nor was I at that time aware that they had been paid. For that reason... No cost was attributed to this support on the election expense form submitted to SIPO following that election. In December, in light of a complaint made to SIPO concerning this support and a letter confirming the receipt of a complaint, which I received last Friday, I undertook a full review of the campaign myself in recent weeks. During the course of the review, I was made aware that the individual concerned had been paid for their help in the 2016 campaign. I was not aware before this time of any payment having been made. But questions remained. With Claire on Thursday just after 10, Minister of State for European Affairs and Defence Peter Burke of Fine Gael and Sinn Féin's Matt Carthy with what we shall call a scrap. What we are saying is that the story that Pascal Dunhu has put forward isn't actually credible. It's very hard to for any objective observer and particularly anybody who understands how election campaigns run to accept the story that Pascal Dunhu has outlined. And unfortunately, when he has outlined his story, there have been several questions that have arisen from his um, his narrative. And those questions were put to him yesterday in the Dáil and he chose not to answer them. And that is what has led he to this story carrying on for the day. He didn't, the he didn't respond to the questions. He didn't, resp- 
I just, I just here. answered. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. I've just you answered, are and Sinn Fein are, are, have answered. But legislation constantly, and I've consistently pointed that out, Matt. No, yes. well, actually, that's not true, and it um, is true. no, it's not because well, the well, what adjudicators about the are. Then? The what adjudicator, about that three million uh, pounds you took in? Into, no, into the north despite the face of the will saying it was for the operations of the Republic of Ireland what Peter, about that? Peter I know that the Fine Gael press office instructed you this morning to try and throw as much mud as possible answer, to try and take the focus the question, away from what you're, you're, is the actual you thing if you allow me to finish if you allow me to if you allow me to finish if you allow me to finish Hmm, and later that same morning, an announcement that Pascal Donoghue would again address the doll on this matter next Tuesday Back to Harry McGee again, this time with Claire yesterday. What does he have to clear up to make this go away, Harry? Well, uh, when he spoke in the doll yesterday morning, he said he was going to address issues that arose in relation to the payments in 2016 or the donations in 2016 from Michael Stone. And there were some questions that he hadn't fully clarified in his doll statement on Wednesday when he refused to take uh, uh, questions. And these were left hanging in the air. In the first instance, uh, was it a contribution that was made to the party or to himself um, personally? Uh, different rules apply to donations made to parties uh, compared to those made to individuals. Secondly, he said he became aware that the van had been used in 2017. This was the van that was used by the workers to put up posters. How did he become aware of that and who told him and why did he not act at that particular time? And thirdly, um, it's to do with the amount of money uh, that was involved in the donation. Uh, any donation that's made has to be uh, has to tally with commercial rates. And as we've heard, uh, opposition spokespeople from uh, Pierce Doherty to Ivana Bacic uh, to Roshan Shortall, all of them are saying that the figures that were supplied look uh, too low, that they didn't tally with the commercial rate. I think Roshan Shortall was the person who used the phrase mates rates. But on Morning Ireland, while Paul Kors and Pundits delighted, Anya asked Fionn Sheehan of the Irish Independent just how much traction this issue was getting on the ground. This may be one of those issues that politicians within Leinster House are very exercised about and maybe the general public aren't to quite the same extent. So why does it matter and what do you think the political consequences are going to be? Yeah, there's clearly a political calculation being made here, particularly on on Sinn Féin's part because they're the ones uh, leading the charge against Pascal Donoghue to come back at a time when we've had record homelessness, we've had record trolley figures over the the Christmas period and to focus entirely on this issue all all week. They, they, They clearly believe that there is blood in the water here and that there is damage that can be done to both the government and, and Fine Gael, uh, as a whole. There are other TDs saying, look, nobody has contacted my constituency office about this. Nobody cares about it. People are, have, have made their mind uh, up uh, about it. Where it matters is you, you can't have two ethical systems in place. One for the nice guys and one for the guys who you think might might have slight questions uh, to answer over over their over their their career. There is a, a quite clear system in place here, and Pascal Donoghue cannot now provide adequate answers uh, across two general elections. It 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 would appear uh, on how exactly he adhered to these very strict rules. We await the all on Tuesday. Now, here comes a rather startling fact. Bite down hard. Ireland's two richest people have more wealth than half the population at the poorest end. Sorry, one more time, Justin? 
Ireland's two richest people have more wealth than half the population at the poorest end. Wowzers, to use a technical term. And that solid gold nugget from new Oxfam research. Here's CEO Jim Clarkin with Justin McCarthy on Morning Ireland. Global inequality is continuing to grow at dramatic rates. And we've seen the wealth of this extreme elite uh, is they're continuing to amass enormous amounts of wealth. Uh, the World Bank have said that it's the largest increase in global inequality and the largest setback in global poverty since World War II. So there are two sides to the one coin. As these people get extremely wealthy and amass this enormous amount of wealth, people are getting poorer. Mm. 1.7 billion workers are now earning wages that aren't accounting for inflation, so they're actually becoming poorer. Uh, extreme poverty is also increasing with more than 800 million people uh, going to bed hungry every night and that increasing. The chances of reaching our global goal of reducing or or eliminating extreme poverty, that's at the very, very extreme end, uh, the World Bank now estimates is not going to be likely at all by 2030 because of this economic system that we're, we're, we're looking at. Hard to argue that, you might think, but Justin McCarthy had a go. But the wealth, though, Jim, it doesn't just doesn't just sit there. It's used, isn't it, by these people to provide, uh, to to create things, to create employment and enterprise. We, we wouldn't say so. I mean, the 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 truth of it is, um, there's there's only so much wealth a wealthy individual can spend in in multiple lifetimes. In truth, there be, it's being amassed by individuals. Um, it's not being put to economic use, uh, and it is just growing. Uh, disproportionately compared to everybody else. And what we're saying is that what needs to happen now is this extreme wealth needs to be taxed. We need to find a a way to tax wealth, uh, even modestly, a 5% global tax on extreme wealth could could bring in $1.7 trillion. I mean, the, uh, the World Bank, the IMF, the OECD, all of those institutions are all determining that a wealth tax is essential to, to look to rebalance this. We have a situation where, you know, so many people, you know, so many countries across the world are about to introduce austerity. They're paying four times more on debt to creditors than they're paying on health care. You know, wealthy people like Jeff Bezos, who pays 1% tax. If you compare him with Abra Christine, she's a, a market trader we work with in Uganda. She earns $80 a month and she pays 40% in tax. So, okay. you know, there has been a situation emerging over m- recent years where the tax paid by extremely wealthy people has gone down and down and down. Uh, only 4% of entire global tax is 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 collected through wealth tax. So we see, we believe that that needs to change. Jim Clarkin of Oxfam. And this week, so many of the super rich parking the chopper in Switzerland. Political business and civil society leaders are gathered once again this year in Europe's highest town, Davos, for the annual meeting of the World Economic Forum. Davos, the home of superlatives Europe's highest town, it couldn't just be moderately high. But with the hard job in attendance, Adrian Weckler, tech editor at The Independent, who gave drive time and a mousse-bouche of the atmosphere. It's snowy, it's cold, there are a few billionaires uh, driving around, there are crypto parties um, and it's a little bit mad, but it's also quite serious at the same time. Mm, security tight? Very tight. There are snipers on the roof. There are people with machine guns uh, at various junctions of the road where you can't pass. 
um, you don't really want to mess with the Swiss Guards. We can only imagine. So what then is on the agenda? What is the 1% talking about then? The 0.01% mm. rather. I mean, it's it's some of the same topics as last May and the years before. So it's climate change, cost of living is a huge one. Uh, energy uh, security is, is one. And the war in Ukraine uh, is still uh, a very big uh, very big topic here. Any talk of equality or the minimum wage or social deprivation? I mean, there are. The, the thing is about, about this place, this is my first time to Davos, and there is a very large forum where there are some big, big topics discussed, but actually most of the stuff happens in dozens or even hundreds of little mini sessions and mini seminars and conferences around the town, usually in rented hotels. That's where a lot of the business is done. That's why so many of the business leaders are here. I mean, there's some of the most powerful business leaders in the world are here, but most of them aren't going anywhere near the main forum hall. They're <laughs> hanging out in hotels, meeting each other, and doing sort of smaller stage shows where they talk about how their company will save the world. Hmm. But to be fair, and perhaps slightly less cynical, if you do want to line up your face-to-face meetings, it is the place to be. And attending Davos, Taoiseach Leo Varadkar and Finance Minister Michael McGrath. And from Morning Ireland, your editor, Tony Connolly. Who are the big name draws? Well, today, Mary, we have Olaf Scholz, the German Chancellor, who's going to make a very important speech this afternoon. Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, will speak shortly afterwards by video link. Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General of the United Nations, is due to deliver a fairly harrowing speech on uh, those hidden problems around the globe, debt, climate change, uh, hunger um, that are being neglected. He's going to talk about blind spots uh, in, in global problems. Um, we, in a sense, this year it's it's about who isn't here. We we, we don't have Joe Biden. Emmanuel Macron isn't here. Uh, Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader, is not here. His vice premier Liu He is here instead. His vice um, uh, prime minister. Um, th- there is a sense uh, among some of the talking points around Davos this year that. You know, the, the because globalization uh, perhaps hit its peak in, in, the, in the late two, 2000s, there's more talk now about deglobalization of countries uh, bringing back supply chains and uh, manufacturing processes to home uh, or not outsourcing quite so much uh, as they used to to countries that are perhaps less trustworthy. You know, we're talking about China, about Russia and so on. So there there is a bit of a a question mark about the relevance of Davos, but there are still thousands of people here uh, who find this opportunity invaluable in terms of meeting and networking with people that you probably wouldn't normally get to meet. I mean, of course, there are many non-governmental organisations here, charities here. Uh, it's a whole mix of people. Um, but of course, this year, the the the, the real over, overarching theme is the war in Ukraine and pot- potential global recession, uh, inflation and so on. So there's lots to talk about. Mm. So there. Back in a bit. Welcome back. This week on Liveline, stories of dangerous driving. And while we've all seen the ads and know all too well what we shouldn't be doing, texting, speeding, we don't always do the right thing. The almost magnetic lure of the beep, just a quick line, it'll be grand, I'm a good driver. But the stories from these callers will stop you in your tracks. Here's Sinead. Three years ago, her then 14-year-old daughter and her friend went out for a walk. About an hour after they left, I got a phone call from my daughter and she was hysterical on the phone. 
and they had been hit by a jeep. And um, my daughter's best friend, Aoife, um, was killed instantly. She was thrown into a drain. Um, my my daughter stood up from. She got up from the road. She had been. She was thrown kind of onto the grass verge, and yeah. she stood up and she saw Aoife's shoes and socks on the side of the road. And she ran to look for her, and she found her in the drain, and she knew she was in trouble. So she had to get out onto the road and start, um, you know, to, to try and get cars to stop. Yeah. Because the driver initially had, had driven away, and he did come back. I'm not saying he didn't come back, he did. But, but he initially, drive, yeah. he, he had driven away. So um, when she called me and when I got there, a man and woman had stopped and they were performing CPR in Utah. But unfortunately, um, she was killed instantly. And the driver was texting um, at the time of impact. Mm-hmm. And Joe has to stop. I go down the town every day and every day you see somebody and people in cars, people in lorries, people in vans yeah. texting what's wrong with them it has to stop you know we're devastated Aoife's parents are living a nightmare her family on both sides our family my daughter is destroyed I'm destroyed my family's destroyed the driver was a 24 year old man on a learner's permit he pleaded guilty to dangerous driving and was sentenced to three and a half years the final 18 months suspended but as Joe pointed out, the texting hasn't stopped. When, as I did this morning, um, when you see someone driving and texting, there was a truck actually hunched over the steering wheel. Yeah. Um, two hands. You need two hands to text, I suspect. Um, what, what, how do you feel when you see that happening? It breaks my heart. I get so angry. You get really, really angry and upset. But the anger takes over and you just want to, you know, you want to get out of the car and you want to scream at them. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know, if they could understand, if they could take the pain for five minutes, if they could get inside our hearts and inside our heads for five minutes, but you wouldn't do it. Later in the week, Liam phoned in. 28th of February, 2007. Um... 20 past nine in the morning. Um, dropped my daughter to school, myself and Jenny. We okay. usually go for a walk every day, bar Sundays. We just, it was a five kilometre walk around Kilcormock. And uh, just dropped her to school. Yeah. Five minutes later, um, we were walking just past the local filling station. And uh, just walking side by side and chatting. And I yeah, yeah. Kind of, it was a bit windy and it kind of had a head down, you know, kind of into the wind and just looked up and this car in front of me and I just shouted, where's this car going or what's it doing there? That was it. The time I left the house to the happened five minutes, less than five minutes, that's it. Right. Yeah, when the car hit us, we, I was lying and, and someone shouted, you're okay, you're okay, and... and I just said where was Jenny and said they were gone in ramblings. Okay. But that was, there was doctors and there was 
Anderson and Furman, Brian Solomon and remember Jenny's sister who <laughs> came in and said, Jenny is gone. I said, gone where? Right. And they told me. And oh, the, the wheeler in beside me and saw me she died instantly. And was there was there a court case, Liam? It was, yeah. There was a court case after about a year. And um he was put off the road, I think, for life and, and a suspended sentence, you know. But whatever he got or whatever he didn't get, it wasn't going to bring Jenny back. Yeah, and did he did he have, did he offer any form of explanation as to he why he couldn't, couldn't remember. He couldn't remember. No. Couldn't remember. On Wednesday, Denise phoned in. She had been hit by a car, an event that had changed her life entirely. It was in the evening time, Joe. It was about half ten at night. The end of May, OK. Yeah. We come back from Hark at three at a late night shop. I had milk and a packet of crisps. OK. And uh, we were coming down the road, holding hands, and went across the road, pressed the button. The green man was there. Yeah. We went across the road. And just before we got to the footpath, Joe, the car came from nowhere. Wow. I didn't hear nothing. All I remember was being resuscitated in um, the maid hospital. And, and what do you mean resuscitated? Were you dead? Yeah, I was dead, Joe. They resuscitated me five times. I, I remember just hearing a, a, a massive shout from a doctor saying, we have a breath, we have a breath. And then I, I just remember... Uh, coming out with a big breath, Joe, and yeah. I was alive, and I could just say, we have her, we have her. And that was it, and I just kind of faded in and out of consciousness. She spent two years going between three different hospitals learning how to walk and eat again, and she was left with injuries that were never going away. Denise, what, what's your situation now? Um, I find it hard to walk. Uh, I fall over a lot, loss of balance. Yeah. I'm a trip hazard. Um, my husband takes care of me, so protects me from half of the stuff that I may fall over and hurt myself. Basically, nothing, Joe. I can't get on with my life anymore. Oh, good it, God. It, it's kind of it, it stopped. I can't be the woman that I always wanted to be. Yeah. can't be the mother that I wanted to be because all, all them options were taken away from me. It doesn't go away. You wake up with it, you go to bed with it. Is Mark, is Mark with you, Denise? He is, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Would you like to speak to him, John? Yeah, please. Mark came on the line. They have four children together, but it was when he began to speak that you got a real insight into just how difficult their life together was at times. It's it's bloody awful. Like, the oh. kids, um, we're sick of saying no to the kids. And it, you see, nobody sees that side, Joe. You know, oh. like, it's, it's, not, it's a daily struggle for, the both, for, the, for all of us. Now, when they were babies, the pram was great because Denise could use that as support and nobody could see anything. Yeah. You know, like, she has she has her uh, crutches there, but she can't use them because her shoulders were dislocated. If she uses them for five minutes, her shoulders are killing her. Back again. You know? And, like, she can't she can't go up and down the stairs. She's a... Like, she, effectively, she's no knees where her knees should be. There's, like, a mesh in there yeah, yeah. holding her legs together. Now, we were up in the Kappa Hospital there about four years ago. And he had a look and he goes, the next time you're up here, he goes, we'll be probably removing the legs from above the knee. They're that distorted and twisted and it's gone so long. He even had a, he was saying, look, 
I've seen 80 year old women with better legs than you. Yeah. Now I haven't. Did Denise hear that? Yes, yeah, she's in beside me. She laughing. Ah, yeah. Come here, Joe. I always put a smile on her face. If uh, there's nothing else in this life, I'll try and keep her happy. The hit and run driver was never identified and never caught. Let me ask one stupid question, Mark. Do you oh, think no. do you think he knew that he hit Denise? Definitely. Okay. Definitely. So whoever did has been living with it now for has been living with it and I hope it's on their conscience. Because it's on it's in our lives every day, Joe. You know, like in, in the middle of the night when the kids were babies and we, they'd wake up and you know you'd walk the floor with Yeah, them. yeah, of course, yeah. Oh we done that. Because Denise couldn't. Yeah. It's awful. Like there was another I think another person in Galway this morning hit and run. It's nearly one a day, if not two or three. Nobody thinks of the devastation it's left behind. Not just for the, the survivor, for the family. Like the 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 rest of us are in on it. And if it's, if if he had been caught, Mark. Oh Joe. Every day I think of it. Every day, Joe. I'd love to get my hands on him. The things he's done. He's... No, okay. We're good people. We're decent people, Joe. We don't deserve this. Nobody, nobody over there, any other victim is over there. They don't deserve this job. And their story was very difficult, but they also had a huge amount of love. I love the bounds of our no yeah. I'll be with her till till the two of us drop jobs. Yeah. Like she's the love of my life and it's an awful thing to say I go through this. And did you just live close to each other growing up? No, no, no we was from the north side, she was from we, oh, okay. we, we we met together on a building site, you know. Denise was brought in as a cleaner and her uncle ran the firm yeah. and I was brought in as a labourer. And the two of us ended up uh, walking yeah. together and we'd go out and Magic. Ah, uh, stop Joe. We were only courting each other, like we were only with each other six months at the time. And she said it to me before, Why haven't you left me? She goes, why don't you get somebody else? Mm-hmm. I said, because I love you. I fell in love with Denise. I didn't fall in love with the accident. You know, it's just, yeah. uh, she's the other half of me, Joe. Yeah. I'm the better looking half, but she's the other <laughs> half of me. <laughs> Mark and Denise on Liveline. Back in a bit. Welcome back. With Claire Byrne, Concrete. Don't even think about it, because this was really interesting. Did they have the best recipe for concrete? <laughs> and we're still figuring it out. Imagine 2,000 years later, we're still trying to figure out what the Romans did. So when we ask what did they ever do from us, for us, concrete is certainly one of those things. Physicist Dr Shane Bergen from the UCD School of Education. On you go, sir. Um, what, what they did was they mixed a version of cement with sand, gravel and water and they used volcanic ash instead, right? So they would have, of course, had volcanoes in, in, in Roman Italy that they were able to use the clay from there. And they used seawater. And um, 
we, we've known there was a slightly different chemistry involved there, but we've also recently figured that they mixed their concrete in a different way to the way we mix concrete. So it's not just the raw ingredients, it's how you put them together. So it's like baking a cake. If you put the eggs in first, you might get the same sort of cake mm-hmm. out at the end. And that's exactly the same when it comes to making concrete. So people that visit um, ancient Roman sites would see aqueducts. If you go to Rome, you'd see the Colosseum. You would see uh, the Pantheon, that beautiful building in the heart of of Rome that still has a dome in the centre of it that's entirely made out of uh, concrete. And that concrete's not reinforced. And nowadays when we build with concrete, we add steel to it to make it even stronger. And that's allowed us to build skyscrapers and and the likes. But the Romans didn't use steel because they didn't have it. But they still were able to make um, uh, concrete structures. Because concrete flows when you mix it at the start, you can can ask it to make any shape you want. And it seems we have. It is everywhere. The built environment on our planet is growing at an exponential rate. Now, that's a term that's used widely, but rarely sort of properly used. It genuinely is exponential. So that the mass of concrete on our planet now outweighs the mass of all living things. Right. So you think about all the trees and the people and the animals and you add them up and think about what their total mass is. That is less than the amount of concrete stuff that we have out there. So we live in a concrete jungle. And whilst the um, whilst they are durable and great for us, they're not in the long run. It's not sustainable because we in, in producing it, we're emitting carbon dioxide. And then when the weather comes and it's extreme, we see that cities are unable to cope with extreme weather events because concrete doesn't allow water to seep into it. We get floods, we get flash flood. So it's, it's, not, it's not a sustainable way forward. And the, the, but the good thing is, is that there are scientists and engineers out there that have alternatives. It's just time we started to truly invest in them. Told you it was fascinating. And from the Romans to the Greeks, yes we did. Here's Arena's Sean Rocks with a proposal. Consider, if you will, for a moment, Caravaggio's Medusa, the face of her decapitated head frozen in abject horror, blood spurting from her neck, her hair, such as it is, a chaotic tangle of snakes, painted with such dramatic realism they seem to slither before our very eyes. The image evokes no sympathy. This is a creature that got what was coming to her at the hands, of course, of the great and clever hero that was Perseus. Medusa was a monster. Mortal seductress who deviled the holy temple and those who dared to look at her turned to stone. But what if we look again at the myth of Medusa? Taking up that invitation, classicist Natalie Haynes, whose new novel Stone Blind gives us a Medusa who is very far from being a hideous monster. She is a beautiful young woman, at least according to, for example, the poet Pindar, who describes her as Yuparu. He says she's got beautiful cheeks. Um, there's a story in uh, Ovid's Metamorphoses, I think, that men had flocked across the entire Greek world to compete to be her husband. That happens to one other person that I can think of just off the top of my head, Helen of Sparta. She'll become Helen of Troy, the most beautiful woman the world had ever known. There's this sense that Medusa is a monster, and I think it's largely caused by the fact that um, there is an abiding fear in our culture of the female gaze, um, of what women are looking at and what judgments they're making. And that's why the sense that, you know, she only has to look at you and you'll turn to stone. Okay, well, when I started researching her for um, Stone Blind, I I realised that she doesn't kill anybody in any source I could find um, from the ancient world. Nobody is turned to stone by Medusa. There are people who are turned to stone by Medusa's head after she's been killed. 
when her head is used as essentially a weapon of mass destruction ah. by Perseus. At one point, Perseus kills an entire island full of people. So if anything, he has anger management issues, but she yeah. isn't a monster. Yeah. As you said, she was sexually assaulted by Poseidon. And then I'm afraid something which has happened in our culture continuously, as far as I can tell, um, and shows no signs upsettingly of changing. What happens is that having once been assaulted by a man, mm. she's then assaulted a second time. She is punished for having been raped rather than the rapist being punished. And if you seek them out, you might uncover alternative views of Medusa. There are actually really few literary sources about Medusa that survived to us from the ancient world. That's not a particular surprise. We've lost between 97 mm. and 99% of ancient literature. Um, but vase paintings show them in a much more interesting light, I think. They're really ambivalent. There's a, a crater, a wine bowl in the Metropolitan Museum in New York that shows Perseus kind of sneaking up on Medusa. He's on tiptoe. He's obviously got the support of lots of gods. He's the son of Zeus. Um and a mortal woman named Danae. He's wearing uh, shoes that belong to Hermes, winged sandals, so he can fly away once he's killed Medusa. Mm. He's got a hat on. That's the cap of darkness that belongs to the god Hades. It makes him invisible. He's holding a curved sword. It's called a harpe. That belongs to Zeus, his father. It's wrapping around Medusa's neck on this vase painting. And behind him is Athene acting as a sort of guide. He's looking behind her to get advice from her. And the first time I saw this vase, I thought, oh, well, he's looking back because he doesn't want to make eye contact with Medusa. And then I looked again, she's asleep, her eyes are shut. Mm. So he's not at all worried about eye contact. And then when I looked at this scene, I thought, well, it's really different actually from the way that vase painters show like Heracles, Hercules, to give him his Roman name, where his labors, all, it all looks like he's having a whale of a time, killing a hydra or choking a Nemean lion or whatever. And then here's this piece of really ambivalent art. And I think mm. this artist was you know, at best ambivalent, but you can look at this scene and say, Perseus is incredibly endorsed by the gods because look at how they're all helping him. Hermes lends the shoes, Zeus lends the sword, Hades lends the hat, and Athene is there to help out. But another way of looking at it is just how useless is this young man <laughs> that all these gods have to help him out? Yeah, and Hercules it's... never gets help from anybody. Yeah. <laughs> but as Sean pointed out, he is a child of privilege. Daddy, a god after all. Yeah, he's the ultimate Nepo baby, as I believe they call them now. <laughs> so, yes, absolutely. You know, he is the son of Zeus. So what's the worst that's going to happen to him? Mm. You know, the stakes are really low for deities. The gods are squabbling constantly. And is it about something profound and important? No, it's usually about really petty things. <laughs> because, of course, if you live forever, nothing's really at stake yeah. for you. Natalie Haynes on Arena. January, January, January. Will it ever end? With Ray, Dr Cliff Arnall, the man who coined the phrase Blue Monday. So it was 2005 uh, and, and you, you were being paid by a travel company and they wanted to find yes. out when people were more, most likely to book a holiday. Was that it? Yes, that, 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 that's right. So the, the two were put together. So what I, I thought was the most depressing day and, mm. and therefore that day would be a good day to book a holiday to uh -huh. basically look ahead and, and think a positive thing. So marketing was involved but there was also a little bit of science, a formula of sorts. So you, you included weather, uh, debt as in financial debt um, which mm. a lot of people would be uh, experiencing this time of the year after overspending at Christmas time. Uh, the time since mm. Christmas 
Um, Q, time since failing our New Year's resolutions. Ah, I see. And then M is for low mm. motivational levels and NA. Uh, NA is the is actually the need to take action. Oh, the need so to take in action. Spite, right. Okay. Yeah. So in, in spite of uh, being, you know, low motivation, mm. people know, certainly, certainly the people I've, I work with, you know, they go, I, I know I need to make some, some changes, even though I don't feel great right now. I, I want to be taking some constructive steps. So broke, cold and a failure. Perfect. And it turns out even its creator had issues with the concept. Were you part of a group called Stop Blue Monday? Yes, yes, I, 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 absolutely. The, um, in the same way that I would love it, that I, I would become permanently redundant in that the, the day that there's not a need for psychologists and psychiatrists it, it is, is, it would be a wonderful day. Mm. A wonderful day, perhaps, Dr Arnell, but not one that we will be seeing on this programme. Because where would January radio be without our psychologists? With Brendan, Dr Maureen Gaffney. And if we are thrills of misery with nothing to look forward to but a good keening at the weekend, is it really our fault? The pegs airs bred into the bones of us. Complaining really is a form of bonding in Ireland, you know, um, that, you know, we, we complain to each other as a way of kind of getting closer. Uh, I yeah. was very conscious of that when I went to America and, um, you know, I, I used to sort of, you know, complain about the weather and all kinds of things. And Maureen, you're a really <laughs> negative person. <laughs> but, but I think people were kind of astonished, yeah, you know. Yeah. But also they were, you know, I would comment on the weather all the time. I would say it's a lovely day or it's a <laughs> terrible day. And, uh, and people, of course, who expected the seasons to be similar, you know, where would say, mm, yeah, you know, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. what's to comment about that? But, but that's actually natural because let's when, go, let's go on when something is yeah. unpredictable, you have to keep attending to okay. So then, should we be aiming for the robust mental health of an American, the teeth, the confidence, schutzpah, the can-do? You are kind of saying that, like, Irish people, there's comfort in pessimism almost and not expecting too much. Should yeah. we all try and be more optimistic or can you be? Can you try and be more optimistic? Yeah, I mean, Americans are, I think, more optimistic. It's kind of almost built into the constitution there, you yeah. know, that... Um, but, but I suppose my observations of them is that it's a mindset rather than a feeling. It's not that they're feeling more optimistic. Yeah. It's more, and, and often there's a kind of a grimness about it. You know, um, I say to people, how are things? And they say, just fine, you know. Okay. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, and there's a kind of, and I remember when I worked there, you know, you'd see these guys trudging from meetings to meetings, you know, like really burdened by the day, you know. Um, and, and they'd have this sort of... Um, kind of ironic thing, you know, you would say to them, how are things? And they'd say, oh, living the dream, you know. Yeah, so yeah. they were kind of almost sending themselves up, you know. Um, so I, I think just in America, you're expected, you know, um, to put your best foot forward. Which might you know? be no harm, would it, for if, if we had a well, bit more uh, of that no, expectation it, it, in it, Ireland? It, it wouldn't be more harm, actually. No, I but we are in the dark, dank, cold days of winter. Peak Irish complaining territory or bonding. But if we want to feel better at this time of year, we need to work it just a little. So does mindset dictate the mood then? Like if you decide that we're going to be positive, will you get a good mood out of that? Or does mood dictate the mindset? 
Well, it's it's not so much that you say I'm going to be positive. It it's sort of more fine grained than that. The 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 view more I suppose is, look, there are things that are not going to go right today. There are things that aren't perfect about you know the day. The sky is dark and grey, you know, and it's raining and all that. But 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 there are good things also going to happen today. You know, okay. there are so things. So you're suggesting realism somewhere in the middle. There, it's it's a, more a, an it's, it's, it's more really to be alert to the fact that no matter how great things are, like psychologically or physically, that that there are always going to be bright lights in that. You know, there's going to be things that will happen. You know, in your heart and soul, that at the end of the day. You will have met people who cheered you up in the corridor. You're, you'll have met people in the canteen that that told you an interesting story. Mm. Um, you'll have had an sort of a, a, a maybe one conversation with someone who actually cares about you. You know, um, and you'll have things so to look no, forward notice, to. Notice, yeah. the good things a bit. And, like, and yeah, I, there's a, there's a meditation I sometimes do. Let the good land. Your yeah. man says, you know. Yeah. Like, That's like right. take a beat with it and go acknowledge yes. something yeah, good happened there. Exactly. Break out those kitten mittens and give yourself a good self-care rope down. And this next clip, well, we thought long and hard before including it. You'll hear why. I think that particularly when it gets into public discourse, I, I think it can have a very depressing effect. I, I think you see that in your private life, you know, even if you're complaining, you, you kind of know privately the things that are going right for you. But but if you're if you're in the public arena and you're presenting this almost relentlessly negative view of how things are, um, then then I think it, it's affecting everyone then because, you know, feelings are contagious and there's a sense that if you turn on the radio, you know, or turn on TV that, you know, you're going to get an awful lot of, you know, what's wrong with the world. OK, I, this I, is all a bit close to yeah, the bone now. Yeah. Let's stop. <laughs> Let's not dwell on that too much. Maureen Gaffney with Brendan. Oh, look over there. Is that a Battenberg on your desk? Cake in the office. OK. Cake in the office. OK. I don't know what it is. I have a thing about cake in the office. I cannot stand cake in the office. I don't want it. I don't like to see it coming in the trap. The fuss, everyone gathering around, the outer tune, happy birthday. Uh, but maybe the and the cake is always a really nasty looking thing. And then you might hear the the on the, 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 the uncorking of a warm bottle of prosecco and you just go, Oh lads. No, I can't be dealing with it at all. Now we'll go out for a scoop or a, a cake or tea or, you know, for sure. But it's just dragging it into the office. gets all over the floor now. Anyway, over in the UK, a little digression there. Over in the UK, the cake in the office, it, they're saying, should be viewed like passive smoking because it's uh, it's an unhealthy thing for people to be eating cake in the office. So I'm, I'm, I think that's excessive now. I think if somebody wants to have cake in the office, by all means, have it. Just A, don't invite me. And B, please don't invite me. And otherwise, it's fine. Enjoy. A big flouncy gatto it is then. Well, that is almost it from this week's playback. And before we go, Mike Scott of the Waterboys was in with the Darcy yesterday and they played this clip from a school in Connemara in 1987. Very cute. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week. Well, you know the words to this sing-along? Yeah. And a picture...